welcome to A Reason for Hope. How y'all doing? My name is Adrian. I'm co-hosting today and uh, in studio with our walking in pastor, Scott Richards, and uh, our uh, uh, one of the co-pastors here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Pastor Sean Richards. Hello, sir. Hello. This is a daily weekday Bible program, Bible answer program, where you can uh, chime in and ask your questions. We live stream simultaneously to multiple platforms. Uh, you can check us out on Facebook, and you can see the information there for Facebook, and uh, uh, just join the live stream. We live stream every weekday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So part of the year, we're in line with uh, California, and the rest of the year, we're in line with nobody. Ourselves. <laughs> 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 but uh, you can check us out on Facebook, and again, just join the live stream and use the chat box to uh, ask your questions. And if you have a question about the Bible, about uh, the Christian worldview, uh, about my phone and why it's cricking, cricketing and why I forgot to silence it this time, uh, feel free to ask about that. But mainly we want questions about the Christian worldview. Why do people have faith in God and Christianity? Is it because they need a mental or emotional crutch? Or is it because there are good reasons for believing in a creator God and good reasons for believing that God revealed himself in history through the person of Jesus Christ and how significant is that to all of us as human beings and then again if you are a believer perhaps you're just uh, a little uh, bewildered by certain passages or maybe just trying to understand how to apply a scripture to your life um, please chime in you can also join us on your YouTube and hopefully this will come up correctly youtube.com a reason for hope 546 is our handle that didn't go through the way I had hoped. <laughs> and uh, if you want to, you can also uh, join us on our website. So if you want, don't want to follow us on a social media platform like YouTube or Facebook, again, just go to the live stream, use the comment section to ask your questions. You can also join us on our website. Uh, just go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, go to the watch live tab, and you can catch us there. Uh, it has a nifty little chat box. You can watch not only this program every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m., but also our services. We have our Wednesday night Oasis service at 6.30 p.m. Right now we're going through the book of Ezekiel, and our Sunday morning services are at 8, 9.30, and 11, and we live stream all three services, and currently we're going through the books, uh, book of Acts. So if you want to check that out, you can do so by, again, going to our website, joining the live stream. And if you have a question during this program, a reason for hope, you can ask that right there in the little chat box. And if you want to make a prayer request, you can also do that. There's a nice little button there when you go to our website. We also have a, an app that if you are part of our community, you can download the app from the Apple or Google Play Store. Just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and look for that little Dove logo that you see there. And you can download our app where you can follow up on current events, join chat groups, create chat groups. Uh, watch our archives of past teachings as we go through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And, uh, of course, it has a digital Bible where you can leave notes, highlight texts, and just remember your study through God's Word if you want to and uh, enjoy using digital technology to do that. If not, if you're like uh, uh, Pastor Scott and perhaps even myself at times, uh, I prefer to just write things down and highlight them on a piece of paper, but uh, some of us like to use digital as well, so you can do that. If you want to ask your questions in a more discreet manner, you can just email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Again, if you uh, just don't want to have your social media handle out there and you're asking maybe a question that's more personal, feel free to email us as well. 
And if you don't want us to mention your name during the question, just make sure you let us know that in your email question. And we monitor that throughout the program. So feel free to use that as well. And, and lastly, if you wouldn't mind following our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter, now X, <laughs> you can do so by just typing in his little handle there, at Scott R4H, and you can follow along. Now that we've gone through all that on how you can connect with us, I'd like to encourage our uh, listeners and our those viewing to uh, join us in a word of prayer as we ask God to speak through our Bible Answer Guys here. It would be awesome. Could you do that for us? I'd love to. <laughs> Father, thank you that we can connect with you, and that's the most important thing. And thank you, Lord, that our connection comes not by man's speculations or feelings or strange experiences, uh, but through your time-tested word. Lord, it's a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. And we pray that uh, as we answer questions today, we would allow your word to be just that to us, uh, that uh, we wouldn't share our own takes or our own two cents worth, but would allow the principles, the precepts, even the practical examples of how you've worked uh, in the lives of people down through time, we find recorded in your word applied to our lives today. God, thank you that you have given us this source of confident direction in these times of confusion. Continue to guide and lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, do we have any updates? I, I, I kind of read a little update on uh, a new deal. I guess we traded billions of dollars for some Americans that were uh, well, imprisoned yeah, Iran yeah, and they yeah, got yesterday. <laughs> yesterday we talked about that on the program. Oh, okay. Six billion with a B dollars uh, to Iran. Uh, for the uh, removal of uh, six uh, individuals with dual Iranian-American citizenships who had been arrested by Iran, this has moved them uh, out of prison uh, into uh, uh, basically uh, house custody uh, in a hotel. That's pretty much the only thing that happened was where they were housed. They are not free uh, to go uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, some have called this the mini-nuclear uh, deal, the Joint uh, Comprehensive Plan of Action uh, back in 2015 uh, was called that. Uh, some people have called this a mini-version because, uh, again, it is an opportunity or an attempt to try to uh, use the carrot rather than the stick to uh, motivate uh, the mad mullahs in Tehran to good behavior. Well, fascinatingly, on the, uh, the wings of this development, $6 billion uh, given to the Iranian government, which I, I think at best, although it's earmarked for uh, water and humanitarian aid, uh, well, uh, the Iranians in the past have used any kind of uh, thawing of uh, their assets that have been placed under sanction as opportunity to be able to uh, fuel their uh, terrorist activities across the Middle East and across the world. As if to confirm this, a uh, headline from the Jerusalem Post today, Iran moves closer toward possible nuclear weapons test, according to European Intel. Iran's fast-moving development of weapons-grade uranium is bringing the possibility of an Iranian first nuclear test closer. Uh, the article said this, the Islamic Republic of Iran is close to possibly testing a nuclear weapons device and has sought to obtain illicit technology for its active atomic uh, weapons program, according to a series of shocking European intelligence reports uh, released earlier this year. The Middle East Media Research Institute, MEMRI, 
first published translations of the intelligence documents on its website. The Jerusalem Post is the first Israeli newspaper to report on the intelligence finding from the Netherlands, Sweden, and Germany. So you've got the Netherlands, Sweden, and Germany's uh, intelligence apparatus, apparati, uh, uh, digging up this, uh, this kind of data. This is not coming from Mossad. This is not coming uh, from Israel itself. They said the most unsettling revelation from the patch of intelligence data comes from the Netherlands General and Intelligence Security Service. Uh, this security service determined the Iranian regime's fast-moving development of weapons-grade uranium brings the option of a possible nuclear uh, uh, test in Iran a much closer, according to the Dutch intelligence report. Last year, Iran proceeded with its nuclear program. The country continues to increase stocks of 20% and 60% enriched uranium. By means of centrifuges, this can be used for further enrichment to the 90% enriched uranium needed for a nuclear weapon. So uh, three independent European security services are saying that, no, Iran hasn't decided to put this on the shelf. No, they haven't decided to play nice in that region. They continue to develop uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile technology uh, that would have the possibility of being able to deliver a weapon along this line. Even if they didn't have that, just being able to have a nuclear device of this kind uh, given, say, into the uh, hands of a particular terrorist uh, organization, say, uh, being able to smuggle it on board a, a ship off of, say, the port of Haifa or uh, somewhere in Israel along this line, or even uh, the United States. Remember, uh, every Friday in Iran, there's a rally uh, outside the uh, palatial uh, digs of the Mad Mullahs, uh, where they uh, chant for a few hours, death to the great Satan and death to the little Satan. Well, the little Satan is Israel. The great Satan, the United States, because the Iranians still blame the United States, and probably with good reason, for deposing their chosen leader and bringing to power the Shah of Iran uh, way back in the late 50s. So uh, really having it in for the United States uh, if they do obtain a nuclear weapon and say, well, you know, we have, uh, you know, again, the Iron Dome, we have these anti-missile uh, interceptors. Uh, it doesn't matter if you can sneak something like that, say, into the port of Los Angeles and blow it up. Uh, you have certainly uh, inflicted a blow that would make 9-11 look like a walk in the park. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're doing this uh, with the full conviction that if you die in a jihad, you will be welcomed into Islamic paradise uh, which appears more like uh, something out of the Playboy Mansion, uh, then, you know, how many people are going to sign up for that sort of thing? So uh, fascinating development there, for sure, dovetailing on uh, what we saw yesterday. Uh, another interesting series of articles have uh, just uh, posted on the Jerusalem Post. Didn't have a chance to look at them and uh, be able to give you an analysis. We'll be able to do that uh, on our next edition of the broadcast. But the uh, fascinating uh, tenor of these articles seems to indicate that the massive protests against judicial reform that are going on in Israel, that some have even called uh, bringing Israel to the edge of a civil war, have been largely funded by organizations, entities, and uh, individuals outside of Israel. Well, we'll read up on all these articles and find out uh, how they're following the money on all of these things. And uh, what we're seeing is, uh, I think, warfare by any other name 
You have the Iranians trying to develop a bomb. You have Hezbollah with 250,000 rockets aimed at Israel right now. You have uh, the uh, amateurs down in Gaza, like uh, Hamas and uh, Islamic Jihad, trying to stir up trouble. But uh, boy, you really want uh, to deliver a body blow to any kind of a nation, do it through economic warfare. And that appears to be what is happening here. The good news is he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, according to Psalm 121. God is in control and he is watching over his people, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be praying for him during these times. Mm, indeed. What's that passage that says those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed? Genesis 12, 3. Mm. Write it down, uh, <laughs> learn it, live it, love it. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. uh, you know, there's been a lot of people who have tried mm. to take out uh, God's people down through time. I want to read a, a great uh, cautionary tale uh, against anti-Semitism. Read the book of Esther, mm. you know, and find out how a fellow by the name of Haman, uh, who was very highly placed in the Persian government of his day, uh, ended up, well, uh, learning lessons the hard way. Ended up, as Shakespeare once said, hoist by his own petard, blown <laughs> up by his own bomb. That's usually what happens to the people that go after Israel. But mm. uh, please be praying for that, and we'll keep an eye on these developments. Well, thanks for the update. And, uh, yeah, if we whatever we didn't get to as far as what's in the news, maybe we can touch on a little bit on Monday. Hey, and I had one other uh, article that came up in the news that I think can dovetail into uh, our questions today. There were some questions that were raised on our Twitter feed about all of this, um, a really disturbing video uh, was posted uh, online and also on the uh, Not the Bee uh, website, which is the news outlet of the Babylon Bee. The, the, the non-satire. Yeah, the, the Babylon Bee is the satire. And the Not the Bee is the actual news and comment side of it. Just a really troubling video that came out of the uh, terrible uh, things that have happened in Maui. Uh, last week. As many of you know, uh, Lahaina Town uh, essentially burned down. Front Street is no more. I mean, it's completely incinerated. We heard uh, horrible stories uh, about people trying to flee uh, th this fire that was, uh, again, fires immediately broke out in three different parts of the island. Uh, there's uh, speculation that it was power lines that were blown down, although three different parts of the islands having power lines fail at the same time seemed a little strange. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, things like that are still under investigation. Uh, hurricane force winds uh, were being blown. A hurricane was uh, proceeding to the south of Maui, but the winds from the hurricane certainly stirred things up. And that's why uh, these fires just swept through uh, with such force and such danger that people were literally fleeing into the water to be uh, rescued by the Coast Guard to get out of harm's way. Having said that, however, uh, very disturbing images coming out of Maui of a group of individuals fleeing the flames in Lahaina Town, trying to get out uh, from harm's way, and certainly a very frightening set of circumstances. Your life is on the line. Driving along, three guys in a car, seeing a woman by the side of the road passed out, unconscious, not sure if she was alive or dead. Uh, the people in the car said, keep going, keep going. We can't help her. Nothing we can do for her. And so they left her by the side of the road. Now, the big ethical question that comes up, we posted uh, the uh, video on our Twitter feed if you want to check it out, uh, is this. If we find ourselves in a situation 
where it's life and death. And, you know, the more that you would hear people comment on this, especially individuals who are first responders and such, uh, you know, they would say that one of the uh, first rules that you follow in a situation like this is make sure of your own safety before you try to help somebody else. And would try to say, well, you know, the, the amount of smoke, the amount of heat, these sort of things, if they had stopped, then there would have been four victims by the side of the road. Um, do we know that for sure? Uh, if we had been in that set of circumstances, uh, what in the world would we do in that situation? And I think the big question that we have to work through is not only what would we do personally in that situation, but does God's word give us any kind of insight into what he would want our default position to be in that situation? By the way, the uh, uh, post uh, that uh, we cited on uh, Twitter had this comment, humanity is dead. They just drove right past her and left her for dead. Hmm. Wow. And uh, the, the video, as I said, very, very troubling indeed. So I throw it out to you, my fellow uh, Bible answer guys. Uh, if someone said, what should I do in a situation like that? Am I justified in just trying to save those who are in the car with me? Uh, do I stop and make any kind of possible intervention, not even knowing if this woman was alive or dead at this particular time? What do you do and how can we think through that issue scripturally? Well, set in a list of priorities, people obviously will jump first mentally to the parable of the Good Samaritan who was in a literal situation where he was in a dangerous, potentially, um, you could say, manipulated situation where a badger would lie wounded and then someone else would jump them when they tried to see if they were all right. People could consider that situation and have a list of priorities and saying, am I alone? Am I concerned for my own safety? Is this person really hurt or are they faking? And then of course the issue of if you have family with you and there are other people that you will answer to for God, for your ability to make good decisions for. Obviously, every situation is going to be different. There's not a principle of the Christian thing to do is to tend to everyone who appears to be in need. There's more than one factor to consider. But when it comes to approaching any situation, step one always needs to be done in prayerfulness. If we are in a situation where they have the opportunity to show God's heart, the first thing we need to do is receive it, because with that can come some wisdom, being able to assess the situation and maybe being given inclinations that something may not be right, if, of course, that is in fact the case. If you have the opportunity to tend to someone, uh, for example, when we did a uh, outreach up in Sholo, the um, uh, Indian reservations up there to help basically build a uh, crisis pregnancy center, for the locals. I was doing extensive running at the time and the son wasn't willing to wait for me. So I was wandering back in the dark and this family was willing to help and pick me up and show that at the point that I had finally navigated back to the street, I had a choice between turning right and left and ended up going four miles in the wrong direction before they were willing to pick me up. They were taking a definite risk. It wasn't a safe neighborhood. It wasn't uh, the most You're a stranger. Yeah, th those kind of environments. Yeah. But they were willing to show a helping hand, represent Christ likeness, and I'm decidedly grateful for that. I didn't have to spend another four hours jogging, not knowing which direction to go turns out I should have turned right, by the way. But 
when you're in that situation, I think that is the first and most important thing to do is if you approach the situation, if you're in a situation where there could be risks, first right. see if you can uh, have an eye in the sky perspective, if you will, and trust your instincts on these sort of issues. When it comes to anything beyond that, then he who sees his neighbor in need but does not provide for his needs, as the Apostle James once observed, then how does he show God's love? How is he loving his neighbor? So that's obviously step two. When people say, no, 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 step one always needs to be default on love, even in the sense of foolishness. Well, I can respect the fact that you'd rather answer to God for wanting to do the right thing, even if it puts you in an awful situation, but the Christian life isn't one of foolishness, at the expense of all others in order to pursue love. Even Jesus knew when it was time to distance himself from crowds that were, uh, I guess, of less than ideal intent for his future. So the whole perspective in that regard would be it's not as cut and dry as the parable of the Good Samaritan. That parable was meant to illustrate that there is no distinction between ethnicity or culture or preferences the kind of people who could be assumed to do the right thing, what was the question that brought it up? It was, who is my neighbor? Who do I show the love of God to? Not what situation do I show the love of God to? We need to think just as much as we need to care. Yeah. Well, uh, again, I would say that our default position needs to be uh, to walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus definitely put himself in a very risky set of circumstances. I think the other factor that comes into play in a situation like this is to realize that, yeah, we need to realize who's been in the car, if there's like young children or things along this line. I certainly think that there's room for that nuance there. But the other side of it is, is pretty challenging. Uh, nobody gets out of this world alive. You know, if we say we are Christians and we're walking in the, the shoes of Jesus, Jesus said uh, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That was def- Jesus' default position. And so if we're in a set of circumstances like the one uh, we see in Maui, uh, you know, I would say that uh, under those circumstances, speaking for me personally, uh, I would certainly have stopped and uh, because there were, again, two other guys in the car, uh, you know, and say, oh, but what about the smoke and what about the heat and all this other stuff? Um, I don't think you're going to be exposed to that much life-threatening danger. You could certainly at least make an attempt uh, to get this person into uh, the car and find out what's going on. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, if uh, we even see, according to the Scripture, our brother in need, and turn our heart away from them, how does the love of God abide in us? So, you know, I would say that in a real way, that's got to be our compass heading. But uh, I would also say in a real way, uh, the uh, person who posted uh, that tweet uh, was onto something about saying humanity is dead. Uh, well, the Bible tells us that before we come to faith in Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Where are we going to get the wherewithal to be able to reach out and, and uh, put ourselves in potentially dangerous, self-sacrificing uh, circumstances, uh, unless we have the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. And I think the difference between people who walk according to that ethic and people who don't walk according to that ethic is going to become more and more pronounced as uh, the time of the end draws near. But fascinating set of circumstances. Yeah, Appreciate the terrifying, input. terrifying. Yeah. I mean, 
I saw that short clip and you know the other side of the road was complete a wall of fire it looked like and uh gosh yeah terrifying. yeah pray for pray for all those individuals it's not the first time America has faced something like that in recent years with all the California fires. We had staff that we were working with um, on our web building team uh, who were right in the middle of that whole thing, and that was terrifying as well. Yep. Yeah, I've been in a few fires myself. <clears throat> well, we've having got... grown up in California. <laughs> yeah, Fire we... season usually gives way to mud season a few months later, yeah. mudslide season. It's a yeah. wonderful place. <laughs> well, when I when I first uh, I was renting a house out of some Whitcliffe missionaries in Catalina, and several years later, after I had moved out and moved on, uh, that same family that was still living there, when all the fires on the mountain burned everything off, the next monsoon season flooded the entire area, and the people who rented the house the the room to me. Uh, the mother almost nearly died. This yeah. neighbor had to swim through the flooding and save her life. It was yeah. terrifying. Yeah, it's it's uh, not, Mother Nature is nothing to mess around with. If you'll yeah. pardon the expression. Well, uh, Talon has a question about what verses, and this is a good question about uh, world religions. So, what verses of the Quran allow for deception if it accomplishes a greater good? Is that a is that a generally good principle that most religions hold to, or is that something unique to Islam? So first, I guess the question is, is it okay to lie if there's a greater good? Is there any biblical application for that? And uh, and then I would say secondary to that, what is the Quran, does the Quran actually do that? Well, why, don't we, why don't we uh, start with the Quran and we'll work backwards. Okay, um, when it comes to the Quran, uh, the doctrine of tikiyah, as it's called, meaning deception or covering, uh, is a justifiable form of lying or deception that allows you to, as you stated, for the greater good, withhold truth if it preserves the Muslim community. Now, remember that Muhammad is most famously quoted in Sahih al-Bukhari, the hadith, the sayings and narrations attributed to his life, that war is deceit, and that according to Surah 929, Muslims are in perpetual war against non-believers until we are either subjugated or submit and become Muslims. The four passages of the Quran that um, are used to justify this, on top of the example of how Muhammad implemented it historically, are Surah 3, 28 through 29. Let not the believers take the unbelievers for friends rather than believers, and whoever does this, he shall have nothing of the guardianship of Allah. You should guard yourselves against them, guarding carefully, and Allah makes you cautious of retribution from himself, and to Allah is the eventual coming. Say, whether you hide what is in your hearts or manifest it, Allah knows it, and he knows whatever is in the heavens and whatever is in the earth, Allah's power over all things. This was modeled out by a quote from Abu Bakr, one of Muhammad's companions and one of the early successors of Muhammad's throne, so to speak, that although we smile in the faces of unbelievers, our hearts curse them. So the idea is that you're not to be friends with Christians, Jews, or non-believers unless it's to take security from them. Allah knows what's in your heart, but make sure that if there's any sign of friendship outwardly, it's never true inwardly. That's Surah 3, 28 29. The third passage is in Surah 9, 8. Uh, how can it be 
while if they prevail against you, they would not pay regarding your cease to ties of relationship, nor those of covenant, whether uh, they please you with their mouths while their hearts do not consent, and most of them are transgressors. So this is a cursing accusation against the believers and the non-believers in a supposed peace treaty and saying you shouldn't have peace with them, you should be uppermost. And this is a ongoing call to violence among Muslim communities against non-Muslims if, of course, they have the upper hand. Otherwise, you can uh, give lip service, so to speak, until that time is achieved. And then the fourth one is Surah 16106. He who disbelieves in Allah after his having believed, not he who is compelled while his heart is at rest on account of faith, but he who opens his breast on disbelief, on these the wrath of Allah, they shall have a grievous chastisement. Now, there's other passages in Surah 2 that justify this as well, but this is more straightforward. The idea is that if someone, and this is also from the Hadith, leaves his Islamic religion, kill him. The law of apostasy. If you leave Islam, all four main schools of Islamic jurisprudence state that if you leave Islam, you're to be put to death. And that's what's preserved the Muslim community for the last 1,400 years, fear of execution. And also note that if you're born in a Muslim home and you become something other than a Muslim, they consider that apostasy as well. Also note that according to Surah 2, we were all born Muslim, and we became apostates later on in life. So unless we revert, we're all under the death penalty, according to those who read their Qurans carefully. So none of us are safe. But the exception to this is in deceiving people in Surah 106, or 16106 by saying, I've abandoned my Islamic religion, but you haven't actually. That Allah could allow that if you're preserving your life. It notes, nor not he was compelled while his heart is rest on account of his faith, but someone who opens their heart to disbelief. There is a difference. You are allowed to lie to believers about your belief in Islam. You are allowed to lie to believers in terms of military alliances, and you are allowed to lie to non-believers if it means that you think the Muslim community will benefit from it. So according to the Quran and based on the example of how Muhammad lived this out, lying is completely permissible. There's also passages in Surah 33 where Muhammad himself specifically was allowed to renege on some of his oaths to basically find something better. The context of it was that he was supposed to keep a promise to his wives about uh, infidelity and the treatment of Mary the Copt in bed, and of course he found something better to do than to keep his oath. He was able to ex expiate his oath and find something better to do, and then just say that uh, Allah's canceled my oath because he didn't tell me to make that promise. I didn't say inshallah, as they say. But mm -hmm. that's the Quran. Um, when it comes to other sacred texts, obviously, Mormons aren't expressly dictated to lie about what they believe in the sources, but none of their uh, evangelists seem to mind misrepresenting or twisting words. The uh, teachings of Hinduism don't necessarily express a belief in right or wrong, so you can't really hold them to a moral authority. Same thing for Buddhism, but in a much more nebulous way. Atheism, it depends on the individual, but when it comes to our own religious texts, I'll pass this back to you. Uh, are we permitted to outright lie in the way that Islam says you can do so communally, militarily, socially, or even maritally? Well, usually the big reference that uh, goes down when this happens, as far as situational ethics is, are concerned, is the uh, illustration of Rahab uh, in the city of Jericho. Uh, as you know, Rahab, uh, in fact, is even commended in James chapter 2 and verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. 
Well, you know, when this is pointed out as a justification for lying, uh, because Rahab did tell the people that were looking for uh, the Jews that they weren't there, uh, you know, first of all, there's nothing in James that says that Rahab was justified when she lied. She was justified when she did the best she could from the frame of reference that she was in, being raised a thoroughgoing Canaanite, who had a small chunk of revelation, but a significant one. We've already heard how you guys left Egypt and how your God took care of Pharaoh. Now you're here. We know it's all over but the shouting. Um, Please remember me and my family when you guys conquer the city. Now, again, responding in faith to the level of revelation that she had, nobody sat down with her. None of the spies sat down with her. Oh, well, Rahab, we've got um, some... uh, you know, biblical ethics we have to go through here before we can proceed <laughs> any further. Uh, the, the fact of the matter was Rahab was not commended for lying. She was commended for believing God uh, under the circumstances that she was in. And so the question always comes up, you know, kind of getting it down to uh, brass tacks, as it were. Uh, okay, say, you know, you were in World War II and you were hiding Jews and the Nazis came and said, do you have any Jews here? Would you tell the Nazis the truth or would you lie to save the lives of those Jewish people? You know, the thing that is always interesting to me about that illustration is it always excludes another possibility, which is far more Christian in its orientation. That is not to rat out the Jewish people that you're hiding, not to lie, as we know from Exodus chapter 20, lying is not big on God's agenda. See Proverbs chapter 6 for more about how God feels about a lying tongue. But there's a third option. The third option would be to say, um, I am under no obligation to tell you because you have abandoned the God-given mandate you have under government. I am not going to say if there are Jews here or not, and I'm willing to take whatever consequences come my way as a result of that decision. Now, we know what consequences would come your way. would not be very pleasant at all. But, you know, greater love has no man than this, than what? To lay down his life for his friends. Kind of get into that sacrificial ethic uh, again. And, and that all kind of gets lost in, in the, uh, the hubbub over uh, whether it's okay Mm -hmm. to lie, you know, whether uh, other religions say it's okay to lie. Well, if you're dealing with religion and it's just man trying to figure out his way in this world with a little divine frosting on the top, of course they're going to tell you it's okay to lie. But uh, once again, uh, we are called to a higher ethic that Jesus not only taught us, but exemplified to us. Mm. You know, again, you know, the idea of the disciples Uh, one of the great proofs of the resurrection of Jesus was the fact that the disciples were willing to face brutal, grisly, torturous deaths rather than lie about the fact that they saw the risen Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that tells us an awful lot about how God feels about telling the truth. Yeah, another Old Testament example would be when the prophet Samuel was going to anoint King David and he told the Lord, Saul's not going to like that I'm uh, basically stamping his replacement. Right. And God told him, don't tell him anything other than where you're going. Now, isn't that an example of God promoting the half-truth, which is a whole lie? No, his priority was the preservation of innocent life against a delusional tyrant. So if we have priorities, like we talked about before, in the preservation of life, 
then the question is, well, why am I doing what I'm doing? Not, oh, this is always forbidden. No, what are you doing? That's the question. Yeah. I get it a lot because I'm an illusionist and we lie for a living, so. (laughs) <laughs> is that what a Cletus McDonald told you? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Inside joke. Yeah. But uh, I remember someone coming into my mentor's dressing room after a show, the Andre Cole show. And she said, well, you know, you're deceiving people. And that's wrong. You can't be an illusionist and a Christian because you're deceiving people. And he looked at her and he goes, then why do you wear makeup? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked myself. But, oh, uh, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, we, we dealt with that a little bit. We thought about, well, is it okay to use any kind of subterfuge at all? Is it okay to use camouflage in the military? Is it okay for a Christian to be an undercover officer and have to lie about their identity in order to catch a predator <laughs> and, and things like that? Like, for example, we watched the movie Sound of Freedom. Those guys have to pretend to be traffickers. They have to lie and deceive in order to get the the bad guys and uh, is it appropriate for law enforcement uh, for believers to be in law enforcement and take on those roles i remember someone saying uh, uh, criticizing a cop because he was at a church and they said oh you're an undercover officer well that's not right you have to lie and deceive and you should quit your job um, are, are are those exceptions or are those uh, more gray areas um, well i i would say uh you know uh, bring it back into a, uh, a personal example. Uh, I remember uh, early on my high school career, I was involved with da- acting uh, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, his father was a uh, prominent character actor in Hollywood. Uh, this guy said, yeah, I think you really got talent in this area. Uh, you know, we're gonna be doing this movie uh, with uh, uh, Jason Robards and Don Johnson. It's a sci-fi movie and uh, you could have uh, a part in it, you know, with a couple of lines, we'll get you your Screen Actors Guild card and you'll be on your way. And I said, wow, that really sounds like a great experience. Uh, What's the movie about? And when they described the way this movie was going to end up, uh, and I, I won't go into some of the more lurid details, you know, I was a new Christian at that time and I prayed about it and I was like, no, this is not something that I could do. Not that there's anything wrong with the art of acting in that uh, everybody who is involved with the process knows you're not deceiving anybody. You're playing a part, if you will. Uh, but the, the big question is, why are we doing what we're doing? And, and I think that kind of comes down to mm-hmm. the uh, criticism that sometimes gets leveled at you mm-hmm. uh, for uh, being involved with uh, sleight of hand. I, I remember one of the first great uh, illusions you showed me and, and I'll never forget the way you uh, summed it up. We, we were at a Chili's restaurant, and, uh, you know, I was like, oh, come on. You know, I'm college educated. You know, I'll you'd never be able to. He goes, okay, uh, Adrian said, uh, I'm going to deceive you right now. What you think is going to happen and what is actually happening are two different things. And so you put a salt shaker on the table, put a, a napkin over the salt shaker, and told my assistant Bo to put his hands underneath the table. Well, you waved your hands around and then you slammed your hand down on top of the salt shaker and it went flat. And Bo's eyes got as big as saucers and he pulled his hands back and there was the salt shaker. Well, <laughs> you smiled at us and said, I just deceived you right now. What you think happened, what actually mm-hmm. happened are two different things. Now, if you had done the same thing and said, uh, therefore, I am a supernatural person and you should go do my yeah. bidding, that would be a problem. That'd be deception. Yeah. That would be deception. 
or like the example in Islam, if the reason that deception is justified is so that you can get back in bed with your sex slave in order to get your wives off your back, that's different <laughs> than someone trying to preserve the life of that the is, Israelis. That is yeah. problematic, yeah. I think, yes. I don't have any sex slaves in my show, just yeah. so you know. <laughs> but I, when I get that question, I, I always point out to people that as an illusionist, I always give a disclaimer in every program, even if it's a secular show, meaning I'm not there to represent uh, the gospel message, which doesn't happen very often, but I do the occasional uh, gig that is uh, for a secular audience. And I always make it very clear that I claim to have no special powers or special abilities. As my mentor would often say, any eight-year-old child can do the things that magicians can do, as long as he's had about 15 years of practice. And so we try to make that very clear. And and so that's how I say, well, I'm not actually deceiving anybody. I'm creating an, a, a, a visual effect, but everyone knows that it is a, uh, a form of trickery, no different than I don't know how they make Henry Cavill look like he's flying through the sky. I don't know how they do it. I just know that it is a cinematic effect. Right. So there you go. Yeah. Thanks for the question. And uh, <clears throat> really interesting about Islam, though. I didn't know. I knew that there was some leeway there, but not quite to that extent. Well, yeah. uh, Tracy wants to know, uh, I am having a debate with a friend of mine. What is the biblical definition of the word homosexual? Is there a biblical definition? Is the word even in the Bible? Yeah, um, it's usually translated from the Greek word arsenokoites, which is a fairly unique word. It was the combination of koitis, which is in reference to sexual interactions, and arson, which is referencing specifically men. Uh, it's the word that's used in the Septuagint in the book of Leviticus, where it specifically describes that two men lie with one another as with a woman. And then, of course, Paul references it again in his letter to the Church of Corinth in chapter 6. But people will try to hand wave, and this is where likely the debate was going, and saying, that's not homosexuality carte blanche. That's saying, if you're not in a monogamous, committed, faithful relationship, to someone of the same gender in a God-glorifying relationship and otherwise uh, moral. Just that one detail is where God's doing his new work of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is what people like Brandon Robertson and other hedonist activists try to do in twisting the Bible to conform to modern basically culture. Uh, another argument is when they say, no, 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 that's not homosexuality as a practice, that's specifically addressing the cultural act of pederasty, which is uh, using basically child boys as prostitutes and slaves for your own pleasure, very common in the ancient Greek and Roman world. Now, when we're talking to people about this issue, obviously, if they're going to go so far as to get into the Greek <laughs> about the issue and say, well, that term's been mistranslated, or you're applying it too broadly. First of all, that doesn't jibe if you go back to Leviticus and how the Septuagint handles it. But even then, 99 times out of 10, the people that bring up the Greek don't actually care about the Greek. They're just trying to lengthen the conversation until right. you give up on it. So passing it to the linguist in the room, when people try to play fast and loose with the truth and into the original languages, which is, I think is the real issue at heart here, mm -hmm. how do we handle that situation even if we don't know how to even spell arsenicoites? Yeah, well, uh, again, it's sometimes uh, very good to be able to know what you're talking about, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, has been demonstrated there. But let's talk about... Uh, you know, uh, the, the actual word here, uh, because some people say, well, you just haven't looked into it. Ah. And uh, why should I take your interpretation versus another interpretation? Well, you know, once again, when people start 
finagling and start uh, going into the, well, you know, in the original language, you know, what they're really saying is, you know, this clear passage in the word of God does not mean what you think it means. You have to have a background in the original languages in order to truly understand what this means. This, this is just, uh, you know, a poor translation or this is just you uh, interposing all of this. Well, a uh, couple things about that. Uh, as far as uh, the verse in question is concerned, uh, we go to the text, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse uh, 9 says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, there's nothing in this text that would indicate that the term homosexual that is used here means anything else than someone who is actively having sex with a member of the same sex. That is pretty much straightforward what this means. And when the hand-waving, as you say, comes in, and people say, well, you've really got to understand this in the original language, I want to let you guys in on a, uh, a hidden secret that uh, you, you magicians have secrets. Uh, we, we pastors have secrets. We seminary types have secrets. Uh, you know, again, I have, I would not consider myself to be a Greek or a Hebrew scholar. I do have a three-year master's degree with an emphasis in biblical languages, so I do know my way around the neighborhood anyway. And I will tell you this, I have yet to come across a single passage of scripture that cannot be understood unless you, you grasp the or nuance in the original language. I have yet to find a single passage in the Word of God that you look at and you go, well, you know, unless you really knew what that word was in Greek, you'd be completely misled by this English translation. Yet to find it. You know, I, I wish I could say that because then that would be job security for me because, see, I'm the great and powerful Oz and I'm the great keeper of all, <laughs> the gatekeeper of all this knowledge. And you got to come to me because nobody else can figure it out. Uh, especially these days when there are such great uh, tools that are available, linguistic tools, you know, cross-referencing tools, places like biblehub.com. You can go as deep as you want. Blue Letter Bible ha have all of these tools that you can use to get familiar with the original language without having to go down to some dusty library to be able to do so. So, you know, when we uh, run into somebody who says, uh, well, that can't mean what it plainly uh, says, uh, what, what you're telling me is you got an agenda. You're no longer reading out of the scripture, you're reading into the scripture. You're trying to fold, spindle, and mutilate it to say something that it simply does not say. If we read the verses leading into a particular passage and we read the verses that follow, we are going to get what is called context there. And uh, the context, more often than not, is going to provide all the focus necessary for us to clearly understand what's being talked about here. The laundry list of things that people are pursuing here, fornication, fornicators, uh, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. If that's your lifestyle, you're going the wrong direction, is what the scripture says. And such were some of you. In other words, it's not fatal 
You can turn to Christ. You can get, have him give you a brand new heart. You can find forgiveness in him. Mm. But that means turning, doing a 180 from the things that I used to put my faith and trust in and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Faith and trust in Jesus Christ is part and parcel with believing him over what he says about the issues of life. Now, inevitably, someone will say, well, Jesus never dealt with homosexuality, uh, therefore he thinks it's okay. Ooh, ooh, pick me. <laughs> well, here's the problem. Jesus didn't have to deal with homosexuality any more than he had to deal with a laundry list of other uh, aberrant sexual behaviors. Why? Because in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus defined where the practice of our sexuality needs to happen. He said to some people, asking a question about divorce, have you not read that from the beginning he made them male and female? Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What Jesus is saying here is there's one place to practice our sexuality. It is in the one man, one woman, bound together by the true and living God, institution we call marriage. If I before I get married, decide to engage in sexual uh, relations, I've committed fornication. If after I get married, I have sexual relations with someone who's not my wife, I've committed adultery. If say uh, in my life, I decide to go beyond this standard and have a sexual relationship with someone of the same gender, I've committed a homosexual act. All of these things are equal in the fact that they are all rebellions against mm. how God set up our sexuality act. And that's how Jesus laid it out. You can add something to that. No, no, just clarifying, when we're going over these, what they call clobber passages, the hedonist community thrives on victimizing themselves. So when you're talking to someone who either has a homosexual bent and maybe is just seeking genuine accountability, but feels beat down by these sort of things, and I can understand that. You listen to some of the talks people have about pornography, and they're less than helpful in just showing that you've irrevocably remapped your brain, and now you're just going to be uh, incapable of meaningful relationships. You're entire life. That's it. it yeah, it's you're not yeah. Yeah, It's not helpful. Yeah. But if on the other hand, you're talking to someone who's either in this lifestyle or just has this sort of struggle, it's one struggle among many, as my father already explained. When we're talking to people, we're trying to remove the excuse that's being made in violation of Proverbs 28 and verse 13, that he who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and abandons his sin will uh, find mercy. So when you're in a situation where you're trying to justify or redefine or make unclear, concealing your sin and saying, well, it's not hurting anybody, you know, my internet history, it's not impacting my ministry, or, you know, Robbie Zacharias and his whole deal and saying, well, the women, uh, despite the manipulation involved there, that they didn't uh, necessarily come forward with it or they weren't being abused. Uh, we can talk about the whole Andrew Tate controversies and saying, well, it's not like he kidnapped them or anything. Yeah, but legitimate evil is being going on. And when we're in the situation of either addressing sin or not, the fine line is the attitude of the person towards it. Are they trying to cover the issue? Are they trying to dismiss the issue? Are they trying to undermine the issue? Or are they saying, here's my issue, what can God do for me? 
And the answer is always, he can forgive you. He can restore you. He loves you in spite of the ways that you struggle. But if we say, it's not a struggle. In fact, the way I'm doing it is holy. It's a new work of God, a la Brandon Robertson and his posse. Well, that's when we have to start answering false doctrine. Understand the difference. Our issue isn't with the homosexual. It's with the person made in the image and likeness of God who needs restoration in sexual immorality. However, that manifests. So the word's more descriptive of something two people do rather than a desire someone may have. Yeah, and Peter Martin's uh, been on the program before talking about where this modern philosophy comes from of your behavior, your inclination, your sexual identity, and that being a very, very modern innovation mm -hmm. as far as thought is concerned. We don't identify people by what they do. We identify people based on the value that's been placed on them. And since God gave his life for us, that value is mm -hmm. deemed infinite. But if, on the other hand, people go out of their way to shame, to mock, to take advantage of or dishonor that sacrifice, what we're doing is not devaluing them. We're revaluating <laughs> the cross mm -hmm. and the fact that that was necessary to redeem us from the things they're trying to use against him. So, yeah. Well, I hope that was helpful, Tracy. Thanks for the question. Sorry we didn't get to it last time, but uh, glad we were able to get to it today. Uh, Linda wants to know, why did Jesus teach in parables? Uh, why are these mysterious and sometimes uh, over analyze and over applied well what the meaning of the camel is and uh well what a real needle is and <laughs> uh, jesus gave us the answer you, you know the, the thing is uh we don't have to speculate about all of that uh in the book of matthew chapter 13 uh jesus disciples wondered the very same thing uh they said why do you speak to them in parables he answered and said to them because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given. Forever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Whatever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes have, uh, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So what is Jesus saying there? Uh, parables uh, were given by Jesus to accomplish two different things. To reveal truth to those whose hearts were open to the kingdom of God. As the Holy Spirit would reveal that as God's divine revelation in the Old Testament that uh, they had already received would uh, reveal the meaning of these, uh, these uh, word pictures, uh, they would be able to understand them. But the parables are also given not just to reveal truth, but to conceal truth from those who've already rejected it. Uh, in other words, if you don't know the Lord, uh, you're not going to understand it. A great illustration of this is not just what we uh, find uh, in uh, the parables, but uh, boy, the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, on our Twitter feed, I saw a post where a person boldly asserted that no one could understand uh, this incredibly chaotic uh, clashing of symbols and uh, illustrations we find in the book of Revelation. It's just too deep and too mysterious for us. 
So therefore, um, no one could uh, possibly look at it and understand what God's plan for the future was. Well, I couldn't help myself. I had to respond. And here's some fun facts. In the book of Revelation, 404 verses in the book of Revelation. Sean, how many Old Testament quotes and allusions are there in the Old Testament, uh, in the, the book of Revelation alone? Last time I counted, and I'm still working on that, by the way, around 300. Yeah. So literally speaking, uh, you know, you're going to stumble over a New Testament quotation or allusion. One estimate I saw said when you include allusions, you've got over 800. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, my answer to that is if you don't understand the first 65 books of the Bible, what makes you think you're going to understand the 66th? You know, if uh, we're, we're dealing with like reading a mystery novel and you turn and you read the last five pages of it, uh, you're probably not going to understand what this deal is with the butler, right? You, you've got to read the whole thing to understand where you're going at the end. And uh, one of the wonderful things about the book of Revelation itself is it's the easiest book of the Bible to interpret. It tells you exactly how to break it down, the things you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. Things you've seen, glorified uh, picture of Jesus that John saw. The things that are, letters of the seven churches. The things that will take place after this, referring to the future, uh, everything that happens after the end of Revelation chapter 3 to the very end. Mm. So, you know, uh, rather than throwing in the towel and saying, oh, this is unfair or, or, you know, I don't get it, well, do your homework, you know? I mean, uh, you know, the, one of the, the, the key principles, they call it hermeneutics, the understanding of Bibles, uh, the Bible, interpreted it properly, is coming to it with the idea that the Bible's message is meant to be understood. If you come to it from that point of view, and that God is more interested in revealing his truth to you than you are in receiving it, you're going to be just fine. So, mm. Now, there are some truths, as Daniel points out, that are sealed to the end times, but that's a very rare instance, and those people will understand because of the fulfillment of the time. Sure, there's seven thunders, and they're not uh, interpreted for us, mm. but we move on from there. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back again on Monday. Have a great weekend. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.